Welcome back to another episode of the 3-Bid League Podcast. I'm Tyler, joined as always by my co-host Matt, and it is Arch Baron Cup week. The A-10 doesn't have a ton of rivalries, and as far as we know, it only has one trophy, and this is a trophy that we've never even seen. But it's time to get excited, because on Tuesday night, Dayton plays St. Louis for the first of two times this year. All right, so since it's rivalry week in the Atlantic 10, we have to talk about one of the biggest games of the season. Before we get into Tuesday night's game between Dayton and St. Louis, we should give a little bit of background on the Arch Baron Cup. St. Louis joined the A-10 in the 2005-2006 season, and a home-and-home between them and Dayton has been a staple in the conference ever since, as they are now the two true Midwestern teams in the conference. We've had some very special moments in this storied rivalry. In 2010 and 2011, St. Louis won back-to-back years on Dayton's senior night, and some people believe that's what led Brian Gregory out of Dayton. He just did not have what it took to win the Arch Baron Cup. But the moment Archie Miller stepped foot on campus, the culture in Dayton basketball changed, and one of the biggest changes was that he cared so much about this game And when he took over, it took a few years, but eventually he dominated the rivalry. In the 2015-16 season, we had some memorable clashes between the two rivals. First game of the year between them at UD Arena, the Flyers took down the Billikens 73-37 in what is now known as the Palindrome game. But then they followed that up with one of the best basketball games ever seen. 52-49 in overtime, the Flyers took them down, led by point guard Scoochie Smith and walk-on Bobby Worley. So we've had some great moments with these teams in the past, and I'm just so excited for this game this week. I'm hoping we have another good one. For anyone unfamiliar with this cup, it is born out of almost 100 years of hatred between the cities of Dayton and St. Louis. The rivalry has gone on since... The Arch Baron Cup is a trophy that we have never seen, and we have made it our goal to find out what this cup looks like before the end of the year. However, the Harewood Horse MVP that is given to the player who plays the best in the two Arch Baron Cup games on the year is very much real and very much has been seen and held by many great players, most notably Costa Santa Tecumpo last season. And for anyone unfamiliar with these two trophies, archbaroncup.com. It's a great read to tell you about the history of this rivalry, or you can just go look at the rivalry recap on Blackburn Review. We fully endorse both of these articles. One may have some more factual things than the other. All right, so we'll get into the preview for the real game coming up this week. St. Louis comes in at 14-8 overall, 5-4 in the conference. They are absolutely in free fall, though. They've lost four straight. Two of them, two of the games during that skid at home against Davidson and Richmond, and then a few nights ago they lost at Rhode Island, so they're really struggling. And even more bad news for them, they're dealing with some injuries, as freshman Casey Hankton likely out with a shoulder injury, and then their star on defense, Javon Bess, questionable with an ankle injury, and if he does play, it looks like he won't be at full strength. And so as I look ahead to this game... I want to introduce a new mantra for the Dayton Flyers team this year. Just keep it simple. If you watch their games against St. Joe's and then against Duquesne this week, they looked like completely different teams in the first and second halves of those games. 
In the first half, they went along with their normal game plan, looked horrendous both times. In the second half, on defense, they played a straight man-to-man, no frills, no traps, no goofing around. And on offense, they fed Obi Toppin, playing against smaller and weaker power forwards both of those times. They would get him moving towards the hoop on pick and rolls. They were throwing him lob dunks. They were getting it to him in the post. And he responded with a pair of 25-plus point games for the first time in his career. The UD offense and defense have both just gotten better as they get more simple. And if this team can execute in the way they did in the second half of both of those games, they might be the best team in the A-10. Because I would say that they're definitely one of the two most talented. They just got to keep it simple and get out of their own way. So this is the start of a crucial section of Dayton's schedule this year. This is the first of four very tough games coming up. So this week they're at St. Louis and then at Rhode Island. Next week's their bye, so they don't play during the week, but they're home for VCU, and they follow that up at Davidson. So ideally for the Flyers, if they want to... Yeah, I would say at this point, if they want to have a chance at cutting down the nets at the end of the regular season, they probably need to go at least 3-1. and one. But if they if they go at least 2-2 two and two here, that should keep them in the hunt for a top-four spot. But it all starts with this St. Louis game for them. If they can pick up a win here, that would be huge moving forward in terms of seeding for the A-10 tournament. And these are like two trains passing in the night right now. I thought that the second half of the Duquesne game was the best that Dayton has looked this entire season. And this is a team that I've watched just about every minute of their season so far. They really went to another level. St. Louis is falling apart. I don't know what's going on there. Now if Javon Bess is out for any significant amount of time, they could potentially fall out of the top eight, let alone just the top half. They're free-falling. They look like they could end up 7th or 8th at this point. And I just don't think that this is the right team for them to write the ship against. Yeah, the Javon Bess injury is really tough. And when you add that Hankton's out too, I think St. Louis, they have a very solid defense overall. But Obi Toppin right now has just been unstoppable the last two games. And with those two injuries... Hassan French will need to step up big time in order to contain Toppin, who's just been, I would say at this point, Toppin has emerged. He's my favorite for A-10 rookie of the year. I know we have a lot of good freshmen this year in the conference. But if Hassan French gets into foul trouble early on in this game, it could be huge trouble for the Billikens. Yeah, I think that Obi has shown over the last two games that he might be Dayton's best player. And like I said, I believe that this is one of the two most talented teams in the conference. It's either them or Davidson. And that's only because Davidson's top-end talent is so good. From 1-6, to I just don't think there's anyone in the league that can match the Flyers when they're using these guys right. And I feel like Obi Toppin was misused until this week. And they have now unlocked this just rolling monster who is actually a brilliant cutter. He's a decent passer. But he's just so dangerous when he gets momentum going to the rim. And their entire offense needs to be based around that now. I feel like this game, obviously St. Louis, they're struggling a lot right now. It might have been different if it was played about a month and a half ago because the loss of Cartier Gordon has really hurt Slew's interior defense. 
he was one of their leading shot blockers along with Hassan French. And without him in the lineup, he's left the program. I just, I don't know if they can contain Dayton's inside game. Dayton's one of the best two-point scoring offenses in the country, and they're just so thin in the post right now. So, SLU's offense has been a huge problem all season. Their defense in the non-conference was great, and Cartier Gordon was a big part of that. Now, it was if you think of this in the analogy of, like, a link of chains, you had Cartier Gordon, you had Hassan French, you had Javon Bess, you had Jordan Goodwin. French takes out the center, Gordon's focused on bigger wings, Bess is also on bigger wings, Jordan Goodwin's typically on your point guard. And then whoever else is in the game, whether it's Isabel or Wiley or Thatch, they can guard whatever perimeter guy is left. Well, they didn't have a ready-made replacement for Gordon, and so even while they still have these three great links, the chain is just completely snapped. And Duquesne really gave us a good preview of the game plan that you need to just exploit this team defensively. Two weeks ago, this was the game that started their free fall. Michael Weathers goes for 19 points and 9 rebounds because Hassan French was focused in on Michael Hughes all game. And plain and simple, they just didn't have a guy big enough and strong enough to guard Weathers. Well, what happened next? Davidson doesn't have a good power forward. They're a smaller team. That was a good matchup for SLU, and Davidson just happened to escape. Then they're playing Richmond. They give up 86 points. Nathan Ko goes for 21. Once again, another power forward they can't stop. Rhode Island on Saturday. Tyrese Martin has the game of his career so far. 16 points, 10 rebounds. It's becoming really clear that the Billikens just can't stop good power forwards. DJ Foreman, when he's in the game, is the best chance they have. But he plays minimal minutes, and a fair amount of those minutes are spent playing center when French is on the bench. Well, what's the one team they attend that you absolutely don't want to play when you can't guard power forwards? It's Dayton. And I want to see them start Ryan Mikesell like they have been doing. I think that Mikesell's too fast for Foreman. And then as they start to get into their bench, as they start to rest French, as they start to play their four-guard lineups, then you turn to the Twin Towers with Toppin and Cunningham. And watching what Toppin did against a guy like Marcus Weathers who is a really strong power forward, but just not tall enough to guard him. And I just can't even imagine what he might do to these 6'5", 6'6", guards that SLU is going to put on him. This needs to be a Ryan Mikesell and Obi Toppin game through and through. And if it is, Dayton should just pound them. I think Dayton on paper should win this game. I think they're definitely the better team. I'm always nervous about picking them on the road. They're coming off a season where they only had one road win the entire season, which was at Richmond. But it just seems like they outmatched them, especially down in the post. So Dayton should win this one. Hopefully it will be a tough road environment. I think St. Louis is usually one of the tougher places to win in the A-10. And if their fans get up for this rivalry game, that could make it interesting. If Dayton takes care of business, though, if they play their game like they did in the second half against Duquesne, I think they should win this one. I just think that this is a perfect rock fight game for Dayton. Slew's going to want to grind it out. I think Dayton's better in that way. When they try try to play a perimeter-oriented game, it hasn't gone too well. Now, granted, they've played well in transition. That's where they've gotten a lot of their good outside shots. But... 
when they're on offense, I'm perfectly fine with this team slowing it down. You dump it in the post, maybe catch Ryan Mikesell on a great cut, get Obi picking and rolling. I'd love to see Josh Cunningham start to run some pick and rolls. He's been picking and popping a lot this season, and I don't know if that's a coaching decision or maybe him trying to throw show off his three-point shot for NBA scouts, but this is the kind of game, just get your big men rolling to the hoop because Hassan French is going to be the only player that can stop them. All right, so obviously we've just hyped up this game a bunch. It's a huge rivalry game, of course. But one of the issues that we've noticed in the A-10, especially the last few years, there just aren't enough rivalry games out there. And maybe this happened, you know, we lost Temple and Xavier recently. It seemed like those were always the two teams everyone wanted to beat because they were always tournament contenders. So, since there's a lack of true rivalries in the A-10, we wanted to come up with a few ideas of our own to make the league more interesting, because right now, I just get the general sentiment on Twitter that everybody's too nice to each other. All the fan bases seem to respect each other a lot, which is nice and all, but we need just a little bit more animosity on social media. We need some more hate between these teams, because right now, I think we're lacking a few rivalries. So, Tyler, do you want to start us off with your first suggestion? Yeah, so we came up with some potential trophies that could join the Arch Baron Cup in the ca- in the trophy cases of the various A-10 arenas. And so my first one, I want to start with a game that was played on Saturday. A rivalry that, from what we saw on Twitter, might actually have some true animosity between it. George Mason against VCU. And each year, I want the winner to get the Colonial Trophy. This is an homage to the time that both of these two teams spent in the CAA back before they moved into the A-10. That may or may not have been the conference that they were both in when they made their final four runs. I think we'll happily claim those as being A-10 runs. But I think it's a nice, just a way to honor the fact that both of these two teams played so well in the CAA for so long. And that's where this rivalry really started to begin. Alright, before I give my first uh, nomination for a rivalry, I just need to point out, you mentioned VCU and George Mason both made Final Four runs in the CAA. At this point, it really seems like that's a qualification to join the A-10, if you think about it. Obviously, those two teams made Final Four runs. Butler, they were only here one year, but they went to the Final Four twice when they were in the Horizon League. And then Davidson, when they were in the SoCon, made the Elite Eight, so... If any low major out there wants to join the A-10, just make a Cinderella run. So what I'm hearing here is that we're going to send Sister Jean to New York to convince the Fordham Board of Directors that God is telling them to go to the MAAC and that next year Loyola will be taking their spot. Hey, I would definitely take another Midwestern school because right now St. Louis and Dayton, we're kind of out on our own little island, so... Yeah, if Loyola's interested, we'd love to have Sister Jean. The only problem with that is I'm not sure how much better the Ramblers would actually make the conference this year if anyone saw the St. Joe's Loyola Chicago game this year. One of the just most thrilling affairs in college basketball this season with the Hawks winning 45-42. Probably might they probably might still be an upgrade over Fordham though. <laughs> All right, so let's get back into our fake rivalry games. Um, so I grew up watching Dayton and Xavier play for the Blackburn-McCafferty Trophy. Always an exciting game, even though Xavier usually came out on top. So 
my motivation here, or my inspiration, was to name these games after tro or after coaches. So my first one, St. Joe's LaSalle, a Big Five rivalry game, and I decided to name this trophy after two of the greatest A-10 coaches to ever do it, the Martelli-Giannini trophy. I don't really know much about the Big Five basketball history. Obviously, they've each had successful runs in the past. I don't know where this ranks in terms of the intensity of other games between the Philadelphia schools, but we actually have this game this week at LaSalle, so it should be a good one. Two teams fighting near the middle of the pack. And I'll give a little preview of the segment we're going to do after this, but what I think is going to be really funny is if they institute this trophy next year and then NBCSN brings Giannini and Martelli to be co-Keller analysts for this game when St. Joe's plays LaSalle next season in front of their two replacements. All right, well, we'll get into the hot seat later. We're not... The jury's still out on that one, maybe. We'll see if Martelli's calling this game or if he's coaching it next year. So, my next rivalry, sliding it a little bit less Midwest than Dayton versus St. Louis. The Dayton versus Duquesne rivalry. They play twice a year, just about every year since I can remember. And we're going to call this the I-70 Trophy. And we're going to do so in honor of all the Dayton fans, a just ridiculous number who every year get in their car and jump on I-70 to drive the four hours to the A.J. Palumbo Center, knowing that it's the closest A-10 row game they will have all season. It is just a staggering number of Flyer fans that are willing to show up. And some of these games the last few years have been in some of the most horrific driving weather you can think. Every year, somewhere between one to 2,000 Dayton fans show up to Palumbo and put it at almost half capacity just by themselves. Alright, so moving on with my coach trophies, I'm going to go with St. Louis, UMass, the Travis Ford Trophy. I don't really know too much about the history here because Travis Ford, he just recently returned to the A-10. This is, I believe, his third year with St. Louis, but should be an intense game always as Travis Ford, he ended his illustrious UMass career with an NIT runner-up when they lost to Ohio State. This year, they actually had a close game at Chaffetz Arena. The Minutemen barely lost when they had a chance to win. And it turns out they, they're probably really wishing they had that one back because they're still sitting at just one win in the A-10. So I'll take it to the greatest college basketball rivalry in, New, in the New England region, UMass versus Rhode Island. And I want those two to play for the DeLorean Trophy. Much like the car in Back to the Future... I think both of these two programs would probably love a time machine with the dial automatically set back to the mid-90s so that UMass can go back to the days before John Calipari got hit with the sanctions and Rhodey can go back to the days before Lamar Odom went pro. Rhodey's obviously had some better near-term success than UMass has, but I think both programs would love to go back to their 1990s heydays. All right, last one for me. Dayton versus VCU, the Anthony Grant Trophy. And this actually feels like a real rivalry at this point. There's been so many close games between these two schools since VCU joined the A-10 in 2012-2013. VCU beat Dayton in the 2015 A-10 championship. Dayton beat VCU back-to-back -back senior nights in 16 and 17. Last year, they went to overtime where VCU won at the Seagull Center. So these games are always so much fun to watch. 
This is actually one of the few games that you see a lot of hate on Twitter between the two fan bases, which is always exciting. But these two, they're two of the classes of this conference. They're both back on top this year after they had to rebuild last year with new coaches. And Anthony Grant, he coached at both places, had success in his short stay at VCU. We'll see at Dayton. So far, it seems that he's turning the program around after... He had a rough first season, but he's got them back in contention this year. So, should be a good game when they meet again next week. And the Anthony Grant Trophy, I would say it needs to be something that is always very clean, always very stylish looking, but an incredibly rigid trophy without much fun to it. That's what I envision the Anthony Grant Trophy as. Yeah, for the most part, but every once in a while, the trophy might run onto the court and get a technical foul, because we've seen that happen once in a while. And one little stipulation of the trophy that I don't think you mentioned is, if either of these two teams ever lose to Fordham, they have to temporarily give the trophy to them until one of the other teams takes it back. Alright, speaking of Fordham, that's a good segue. So I would say, since we started this podcast this year... There have been three teams that we have consistently ignored because there hasn't been much to talk about. That's been Fordham, GW, and LaSalle. And there's been a good reason for that. They've been irrelevant for the most part, and they've just brought the conference down. Well, that's about to change because the LaSalle Explorers, they're 4-4 four and four in the A-10 right now, and we got to give them some respect. So why don't we do that? They started out 0-10, one of the laughing stocks of the entire country, one of the last teams in Division One to win a game, but now they have three road wins already over UMass, Fordham, and Richmond, and all of a sudden they're not looking so bad. Yeah, it's great to see the best name in the conference, Pookie Powell, really come alive, averaging 13.3 points a game in conference, but this isn't a story about offense. This is a story about this rock-solid defense that Coach Ashley Howard has instilled. And the biggest stat that stands out to me, through eight games, they're holding A-10 opponents to 28.8% from three-point range. All three of their wins, their opponents shot below 33%. And that's how the Explorers have improved. They're controlling the three-point line. Yeah, their defense has been phenomenal, especially in conference play. You mentioned Pookie Powell. He averages almost two steals per game. It's actually Tracy Carter that leads them with exactly two per game. He's also leading the A-10 in steal percentage on Ken Palm. And something else, I know we were mostly talking about how great their defense is, but their offensive attack's pretty spread out. They have four double-digit scorers in Powell, Isaiah Deese, and then Sal Fury and Jack Clark. They've both been injured and missed parts of the season, but when they're on the court, they can also bring some offense to LaSalle. Yeah, and in A-10 play, they have four different guys averaging between two and three assists a game. Pookie, Isaiah Dees, Saul Fury, Tracy Carter. They don't have a dominant playmaker. It's a group effort, and that's really why their best scorer and best player, Pookie Powell, is averaging less than 14 points a game, because they're not relying on him to have to carry the load. So one player that I want to mention, and I did not know who this was until he had his first triple nickel of the season a couple games ago, but freshman Ed Crosswell, averaging 4.6 points a game and 5.9 rebounds, so that won't jump off the page or anything, but he's number one in the country in offensive rebound percentage, which is my main stat of the day I wanted to share. 
just phenomenal for a freshman. He's got 27 rebounds over the last two games combined. And he put up five blocks against UMass, who has some pretty strong big men when I think of Holloway and Baptiste. So five blocks against them, very impressive. So you mentioned before this Fordham. And while LaSalle has gone on the rise since conference play started, Fordham has gone the opposite way. And that's not a good thing for Jeff Neubauer. And so I think it's time to talk about the hot seat. Are you feeling warm? Do you need to stand up? The seat is getting warm. It's it's winter time. When you get in your car, you got to turn on the seat warmer. And for the, these coaches we're about to talk about, their seats are ranging from lukewarm to on fire. So do you want to get started with Neubauer? Yeah, this was a guy who, when we talked about this back in December... I tried to deflect the Jeff Neubauer is going to get fired talk. This was right after they beat Rutgers. But, man, oh, man, at some point, it's just been too long. And unless they recover to win at least four games in the A-10, which Ken Palm actually projects, but seems absolutely insane to anyone who's actually watched this team, then I think the only thing that could keep him safe is his buyout. And we have to seriously consider... Does Fordham, a school that doesn't exactly pump a lot of resources in their basketball program, do they really want to pay Jeff Neubauer a buyout when they could just keep him around for another year or two? And obviously we don't know his exact contract situation. It's hard to find out these things, but I think that's the only thing that could protect him from getting fired by now. Yeah, Neubauer, it's an interesting case. He was actually 15-21 and 21 in the A-10 in his first two seasons. And for Fordham's standards, that's pretty darn good. This year, it started out really well. They were actually, we tweeted this out, and I think we cursed them because they still haven't won since then. But at one point, they were 9-3 and three overall in their non-conference. Had the best record in the A-10. Right now, they're 0-8, though, in conference play. And that's ju- not just any 0-8. I mean, let's be honest, this is statistically probably the weakest A-10 we've had in over 10 years, so... That's not really acceptable. I know they have a young team. They're led by a couple freshmen and scoring, but just given Fordham's track record with him, it's hard to see them getting much better. So if he can turn this season around, maybe that could save him. I don't know exactly the status of his buyout, but you might be right. It honestly might come down to how much does Fordham care at this point? Is it really worth it to them to pay Jeff Neubauer to not coach them? And one big thing with them, this is a school that we have mocked for a while for their inability to get guys to actually make it through their full four years. He's got two awesome freshman guards right now and Nick Honor and Jalen Cobb. And even if Fordham decides to keep them around, if one or both of those guys decide that they're leaving in the offseason, that probably needs to be it. Because... If you're going to give him another chance and play the, oh, you had a lot of freshman card, then it's kind of important for those freshmen to come back and become sophomores. I feel like this is just a good time to remind everyone that former Fordham Ram, Eric Pascal, he's starting for one of the best teams in the country in Villanova. So what could have been if Neubauer could keep his guys around longer? That's That'll be important this offseason. If he can keep his key freshmen on the roster... Maybe they could improve to 12th place next year. I don't know. I don't see him doing much better than that. But uh, it's just it's hard to talk about Fordham sometimes. 
Alright, so let's move on to the one that everyone's probably waiting to hear. And this is definitely the most vocal fan base on Twitter when it comes to their coaching situation. Chris Mooney of the Richmond Rant or Richmond Spiders. I see Richmond Rams on Twitter all the time when people make fun of VCU. That's a that's a mistake. The Richmond Spiders are eight and fourteen overall, two and seven in the A ten. And things they just beat St. Louis on the road, so it looked like things might turn around. And then they just lost to LaSalle at home, so it's it's hard to really say good things about this team. I am very, very ready for the Richmond keeps Mooney around after 8-10 and 10 Atlantic 10 season headline at the end of this year. He He's like a vampire. You can't kill him off. He just keeps coming back. And history has actually told us that after a down year like he had last season, he was going to bounce back, win 20 games, and go to the NIT. But... Since that's not going to happen, maybe this is really the end. They are missing one of their best players in Sherrod, who's missed almost the entire season after he went down with an early injury. I don't see him making a big enough difference that Richmond would actually be contending in the A-10. At this point, Richmond fans, they've got to be running out of patience. No tournament appearances since the 2011 Sweet 16. And after that, Mooney... He could have left for a bigger program. I don't know what his offers were at that time, but he decided to stay. He signed a 10-year extension to keep him at Richmond through 2021. But interestingly, his contract was not extended this offseason, so maybe the administration's also running out of patience with him. So you just look back at the history of Mooney. First three years were pretty bad, 13 and 17, 8 and 22, 16 and 15 and lost in the first round of the CBI. Then they came back, 2008, they had their first 21 season, they made made the CBI semifinal. They were great for the next two years, those were the Justin Harper teams. All Everyone from those two squads leaves, they go 16 and 16. Bounce right back, 19 wins, 19 wins, 21 wins in an NIT quarterfinal. Go 16 and 16 in 2016, that's when people started to murmur a little bit about maybe it being time. They went 7-11 in the A-10. Then TJ Klein really grows in his senior year, becomes A-10 player of the year. They win 22 games, make it to the NIT quarterfinals again. And then last year, 12-20. and Well, like I said, the bounce back has always been there for Chris Mooney. Every time he's had a rough year, he's managed to come back with a 20-win season. And if that doesn't happen this year, I mean, I I don't know. I'm not inside the Richmond Athletic Office, but I would put the odds of him being out as being higher than they normally would be for a guy who's such a legend at his school. Yeah, his seat's got to be the hottest, I would say, at this point in the A-10. I, I thought last year would be it after they got off to a just horrendous start in in non-conference and they like you said they turned it around and went 500 the rest of the season but this year it doesn't look like that's going to happen they have a couple more easy home games coming up so if they could win these that would be a step in the right direction but it's hard to see Richmond turning it around at this point an interesting stat for you how many times in Mooney's tenure do you think Richmond's finished in the top two in the A-10 in the regular season I would say maybe 
I don't think they did the Sweet 16 year. I would say maybe the year before they did, but that's... I would say either zero or once. It's zero. The two times they made the NCAA tournament, they finished third, and then the TJ Klein team finished tied for third. Well, you know what, Richmond? They keep competing, though. They they have a young team, but they have fluidity to their offense, as we always hear from our favorite Twitter account, not Chris Mooney. So... Maybe he should coach the team next year. I don't know if that would be an improvement, but it would be entertaining. Yeah, and we saw in the St. Louis game, Nathan Ko came out and had an awesome performance. Grant Golden was great in that game. This is, I feel like this is almost like a tanking NBA team now, where the Fire Mooney Mafia has gotten so strong, and they feel no different than like the Knicks fans right now, where they just want to see their team lose as much as possible just to get Mooney out of there. But they just got so many guys lingering on the periphery, whether it's Grant Golden or Jake Wojcik or Nathan Ko or Jacob Gilliard. And those four guys are enough that they just win some of these random games. I just hope if something happens to Mooney, I, I don't want the Fire Mooney Mafia account to go away. Cause that, that's hilarious. One of the best fans in the A-10, so... That's my biggest fear. If Richmond actually does give Mooney the axe, I I hope we don't see that Twitter account go away. Hey, the good thing for Richmond fans, though, is if Archie Miller rattles off another seven-game losing streak at Indiana, he might be the Spiders coach next year. Or Rick Pitino, you never know. I also hear Steve Alford's looking for a job. So, we actually ran a Twitter poll. This was about a month ago, I think. But... I asked if Richmond fans would want Steve Alford as their next coach, and it was about 60-40 yes. I'm, all I'm going to say to that is be careful what you wish for, because I think that's a somewhat legitimate possibility. They probably wouldn't get that big of a name if the move actually does happen, but that, that would be entertaining, that's for sure. Alright, so Neubauer and Mooney, those were the two obvious ones. We have a couple of other names just to talk about briefly that they're, these guys probably won't get fired, but it's worth talking about. So the first one, Phil Martelli at St. Joe's. They were picked second in the conference by the coaches. They're 10-12 and 12 overall and 3-6 and six in the A-10, and we did not see this coming. You want to be brief with this one? We might have Mart- some different opinions on this I've one. I've seen we'll Martelli see. on the sidelines twice in the last six weeks. He doesn't move. He just stands there with his arms crossed. Like, he actually looks like the physical embodiment of either Statler or Waldorf, the two puppets who hang up in the rafters during the Muppets. Like, whatever, whichever one the taller one is called looks like a dead ringer for Phil Martelli at this point. And beyond that, I just, I just don't think he's getting even close to what he can out of the, what talent he does have on this roster. Obviously, they're decimated by injuries, but Charlie Brown is just so spectacular that they should still be better than they are. They got plenty of talent. I mean, just the St. Joe's games I've watched in conference play, with the exception of them beating Davidson, I thought he's had a few just absolute coaching disasters. And when you look at their records over the last few years, after they made the tournament in 2014, they went 13-18 and 18 the year after. They had the spike in 2016. That was the awesome DeAndre Bembry team, 
where they won 28 games, including a tournament game. But people also forget they had a chance to win the A-10 regular season title outright at home against a horrendous Duquesne team. Got their butts whooped in that game and ended up falling down to fourth. And ever since then, 11-20, 16-16, and then this disaster of a team that I picked to be preseason number one. He's got the legacy thing. He's probably the... Well, I don't want to say probably, but he's certainly one of the two or three greatest head coaches in St. Joe's history. He's won his fair share of A-10 titles, four A-10 Coaches of the Year awards. But at some point, you just got to realize when the writing's on the wall. And just tactically, it seems like he's not the same guy that he was even five years ago. I, all right, I won't deny that St. Joe's, they've been disappointing ever since their last tournament appearance in 2016. But I think you have to admit that no A-10 team has had more injuries than them the last few years since then. Last year, they were without Charlie Brown and Lamar Kimball all year. The year before that, James Demery and Shavar Newkirk each missed a lot of games. And now this year, Kimball's out with another injury. We don't know when he's coming back or if he's coming back. Longpre's been out with a concussion. And then Pierre Francesco Oliva went down with a brutal injury. He's done for the year. And Phil Martelli's teams, they've never been known for their depth. He usually plays a six- or seven-man rotation, it seems. So... That's probably the worst team for the injury bug to hit. For Martelli, this is his 24th season at St. Joe's. He's made seven tournaments. And I feel like his history and his legacy gets him another year. He had the number one team in the country back in 2004. That's one of my first memories as an A-10 fan, just how dominant that team was. They were blowing everybody out. And another factor for him... He's still recruiting some elite talent, guys that can get to the NBA or have been to the NBA. Like, obviously, back on that number one team, he had Jameer Nelson, Delonte West. More recently, he's had guys like Langston Galloway, DeAndre Brembry, Charlie Brown, who is still in the running for A-10 Player of the Year, I think, even though he might have to pick up some of his other stats other than scoring. And then now they have freshman Jared Bynum, who's emerging as a star. So, he's getting some talent. Obviously, that hasn't translated to enough winning, but I think the injuries, you can't deny that that's been a huge factor in why St. Joe's hasn't quite met expectations. Yeah, that certainly does back up some of the struggles. And obviously, we can't know what's going on in the locker room, how well Martelli's getting through to these players. But we, what we can observe is the decisions that they make in the flow of the game. And I've just seen too many times, and the Dayton game on Tuesday was a great example, where Dwayne Cohill all of a sudden shuts down Charlie Brown, and St. Joe's just changes nothing with their offense. He's just really not making adjustments. He's trying to ride high on this heavy three-point system that has gotten them some really nice first-half leads. And some games, that lead has been enough to hold on to. But in the second half, when other teams have been adapting, he hasn't adapted back. And that's how you end up with Charlie Brown scoring 12 points in four minutes to start the game against Dayton, and then only scoring seven the rest of the night. So I guess before we finish up with Martelli, I should note that 
this is a biased answer because as a Dayton fan, I've watched him beat my Flyers over and over. Especially, he just dominated Archie Milger. Especially at their place. I don't think Dayton's won at Hawk Hill since 1999. And maybe that's just my biased opinion that I always happen to watch St. Joe's when they're playing well. But overall, I feel like his history with the program, he's done so much for them. And I I think they give him another year. If not, I mean, he is, he's been at it a long time. He's getting up there in age, so he might be retiring soon anyway. But it's just, it's been a rough year. All right, so now we'll move on. These two guys, I guess I said Martelli would be controversially on the hot seat. Maybe not. Maybe that was too far. These guys, I would be shocked if they got fired, but I think we should talk about them. First, I have Travis Ford at St. Louis, who they were, we already talked about them in the Arch Baron Cup segment. They were picked to win the conference this year, and that's not going to happen, at least not the regular season. They are sitting at 5-4 and four in the A-10 after a four-game losing streak. And obviously Ford, he took over a terrible, terrible program when Jim Cruz got fired. But so far, he hasn't really done a whole lot. Last year, they got up to 500 in the A-10, but this used to be a tournament team. And it just it's not trending in the right direction right now. I never thought we were going to talk about this, and I still don't think Ford's going to get fired unless all of a sudden SLU just loses like five of their next six and end up right around 500, which I actually think is very possible. But just given the expectations and the way this team started, if they slip out of the top eight, I don't think it's impossible. And he's certainly going to have a ton of pressure next year. I just don't get why this team is struggling so badly right now. Their their talent is their front end talent is elite, and we talked about all the issues with Gordon being gone, but that's still no excuse for losing four straight games. You just can't lose to Richmond at home, like losing to Rhode Island on the road. That's okay. Even losing to Duquesne at home or losing at the buzzer at home to. Sorry, losing to Duquesne on the road. Big difference there. And then losing at the buzzer to a Davidson team is probably the best in the conference. But you can't lose at home to Richmond when you're in the middle of this stretch from hell. And he needs to figure this out fast because if this ship keeps sinking, he might be stuck on the boat. So I would say at this point, I think there's no way that he gets fired this year. Just because it is only year three, and given the state of the program when he became the head coach. But I don't see them getting a whole lot better next year, because they're losing Javon Bess, Tremaine Isabel, and DJ Foreman, when most A-10 teams are bringing back their core. I'm also a little bit concerned about the fact that Cartier Gordon transferred after one semester. I don't know all the details of that. I'm not sure what exactly is going on in their program. But the fact that one of the highest-rated recruits in the entire conference transferred that early, that makes me a little bit concerned about for how he's running the program. All I'm saying is, you could if you gave me high enough betting odds on Travis Ford not being back next year, 
I'd probably be willing to take them, even if they're not the 10,000 to 1 odds that Kevin Malone would automatically take. <laughs> All right, so we have one more coach here. Another guy that shouldn't get fired, but I think his heat's warming up. Matt McCall for UMass. The Minutemen are 8-14 and 14 overall, 1-8 and eight in the A-10, 13th place. And, again, he took over a very bad program. Kellogg left it in shambles when he was fired. And McCall, it's only year two. He's a young guy. I think UMass has some patience with him. But I think they might start getting concerned because we're almost through the second season and things are not looking good. Yeah, I don't. I just don't think the seat's hot, and it wouldn't be if I was UMass's AD. I still think Matt McCall is, at the very least, a decent coach. This team's had a bizarre season from start to finish. It's mind-blowing at this point that they beat Providence, but he's just gotten so many up-and-down performances from his role guys, and even now Luan Pipkins is starting to fade. I... I am a big advocate of when your team is really struggling, the coach has to share in the blame. But in this case, I'm really not sure that it is McCall, McCall's fault. At some point, Carl Pierre bouncing between putting up 20 points one night and putting up three the next night, at some point it's just out of your hands. And I'm also a firm believer that you just don't fire a coach after his second year unless your team just completely, completely stinks. So give him one more year, maybe give him two more years, but... I, I certainly wouldn't be thinking about that right now. Yeah, for sure this year, he's not going anywhere. I just think it's something to keep an eye on. If they have a bad year next year, that's when his seat could start to get hot. He is 2-0 against Providence since joining UMass, so that might be enough to keep him around. I know UMass fans were happy about that win this year and last year, but... I don't know. This might just be because of how much we both overrated them. I had them fifth. I know you had them also in the top half somewhere. And he just, so far, he hasn't lived up to expectations. I still think, though, they aren't losing a ton of players next year. As long as Pipkins comes back, which I expect him to. So, next year could be an improvement for sure. Alright, so, those were the five coaches that... I think, have any chance of having a hot seat. You could look at a few other guys like Maurice Joseph for GW, but I think they keep him around because, you know, they had no expectations going into this season. And I feel like with their whole athletic department situation that we covered a couple months ago, I think they keep him around. No one else really comes to mind in the A-10. I think everyone else's job is safe at this point. So we'll take that into our two recurring segments. We'll start with another round of Where He At. Alright, so since we already talked about LaSalle this episode, I figure I would name a LaSalle player here. So I went with B.J. Johnson, who graduated last year. Second team, all day 10 in 2018. He spent two years at Syracuse where he sat the bench for Jim Beheim, but he instantly became a star under Dr. John, even though he played for some bad LaSalle teams, but... One, probably their best player while he was here. He went undrafted in the NBA, and he's currently with the Orlando Magic G League affiliate, the Lakeland Magic. 
where he is averaging 13.6 points per game and 5 rebounds. So having a nice season, and his team is also doing well. They're 20-12 and 12 in second place in the G League. So I went with an A-10 alum who came from a school that isn't in the A-10 anymore. The big Temple Center, Michael Eric, currently in Turkey playing for Darfuska, one of the top teams in all of Europe. And in this year's Euro League, through the first 20 games, he's averaging 12 points and 5 rebounds a game. Now, for those unfamiliar with how European club basketball works, the Euro League is a season played throughout the year in the middle of everyone's season within their country. And it features the 16 best teams in Europe, Darfuska being one of those. They were actually coached by former Cavs coach uh, David Blatt last season. He has since moved on. But Michael Eric was on the team that won the Euro Cup, which is a secondary European competition earlier this year. Um, was a D-League All-Star back in 2016 when he was still in the States with the Texas Legends. But it seems like his career is still going very well, even though he hasn't made it to the NBA. So we also we had a, a listener question where we're going to tie that into this segment. We had someone ask, where is Mo Ali Cox right now? What's he up to? And he's one of our favorite A10 players ever. And Mo Ali, he's doing very well for himself. Probably making more money than a lot of A10 basketball players because he is in the NFL with the Indianapolis Colts, playing tight end for them. Actually caught a couple touchdowns this year. It was really fun to watch him, especially someone like me where I don't have much of a rooting interest in the NFL. So seeing one of my favorite athletes suit up for the Colts. That was a lot of fun. And they made the playoffs this year, so even though they didn't make a deep run, that was that was really cool to see an A-10 basketball player make some noise in the NFL. And beyond that, I had a professor a few weeks ago who tried to compare Mo Ali Cox's athleticism to that of Zion Williamson. So I think that's another great accolade in what has been probably a pretty fun year in the life of Mo Ali Cox. Yeah, I don't see Zion making the NFL, so that's something Mo Ali's got over him. So moving into our stat of the week, I went for a deep throwback. So obviously the NIT used to be the preeminent tournament in college basketball. And back in the 50s, while the NIT and the NCAA tournament both ran, and some teams even played in both, the NIT was still the more prestigious tournament. So over a nine-year stretch, spanning from 1950 to 1958, 17 A-10 teams made it to the NIT semifinals. 15 current members plus one appearance from Temple and one appearance from Xavier. And it was a lot of the same names over and over again. LaSalle, Dayton, St. Bonaventure, Duquesne, Slough. Those were kind of the five dominant ones. And in the 1952 NIT, there were some very entertaining semifinal matchups. The eventual champion LaSalle beat Duquesne 59-46, and Dayton beat St. Bonaventure 69-62 before losing to the Explorers 75-64 in the championship game. So Madison Square Garden that weekend was all A-10 teams, and Dayton actually won an Arch Baron Cup battle in the quarterfinals, beating St. Louis 68-58. So, 1952, the A-10 was a five-bid league back in a 12-team tournament. What a, day, what a day it would have been to be an A-10 fan. 
Alright, so my stat of the day, I already mentioned this earlier when we were covering LaSalle, but their freshman, Ed Crosswell, number one in the country in offensive rebound percentage. Don't have too much else to say about him, but should be someone to watch in the next couple years. So, a quick aside before we wrap this up. We somehow went this whole pod without talking about Davidson, and it's becoming very clear that the Wildcats are the class of the A-10. They have the tiebreaker already over George Mason, VCU, St. Louis, and Duquesne. They still got two games left against Rhode Island, one against Dayton, and one more against St. Bonaventure, who they lead one nothing against. But that weird St. Joe's game now withstanding, the Wildcats look like the best team in the conference. Their schedule's a borderline joke from here on out. I think they're a great bet to go 16-2, and two, and I just keep harping on this number. I think if they do it, they're going to make the NCAA tournament. And Kellen Grady's alive now. I think he's finally healthy. It took him a few weeks to get his legs back under him. But that 29-point barrage that he laid on St. Bonaventure up in Olean was just spectacular to watch. Yeah, that was a tremendous game for Davidson. I did not see that coming, going on the road at St. Bonaventure at the Riley Center. Kellen Grady was just unconscious from three-point range. And if he's shooting the ball like that, Davidson will be so tough to beat. I just don't know how anyone's going to beat them when he, John Axel, and Luke Frampton combined for 67 points. Yeah, they, I, And they all had cold spells of that game, too. It's not like all three of them were on fire from start to finish. Yeah, I think they mentioned a few times during that broadcast, uh, Davidson's backcourt had all of their points. They didn't get much out of Bradkovich or any of their other post players. And yeah, when they're shooting the ball like that, you, you have to play just about a perfect game to beat the Wildcats. Yeah, and so with that, Davidson's coming, Obi Toppin's coming. It's becoming very clear that no power forward in the A-10 and possibly in all of the mid-majors can stop him. These might be the two runaway trains in the A-10. And so, we thank you once again for joining us for another episode of the 3-Bid League Podcast. Hope you guys had some fun listening to this one. If you ever want to get in contact with us and leave us a question, you can send us a DM or reply to one of our tweets at 3BidLeaguePod, or you can shoot us an email, 3BidLeague at gmail.com. Those are all the number three and not the word. And so with that, we want to see what the Arch Baron Cup looks like. So if anyone has access to this, maybe some crazy janitor who has the key to the trophy room, let us know. We, we just want to see a picture. 